You've got questions. We've got answers. Phone lines are wide open. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us on The Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. It's our Friday edition, which means you've got questions, we've got answers. Any question of any kind that relates to any subject matter we ever cover on the broadcast, anything I write about, talk about, any guests we've had on, by all means, give us a call, 866-348-7884. The earlier you call in, the better chance we have of getting to your call as the show goes on. Bottom of the hour... I'm just going to pull up a poll that's going on on Twitter right now. Uh, Very interesting responses that I'm getting to this poll, so we will get to that a little bit later. Before I go to your calls, there's no question that America is being shaken. There's there's no question whatsoever. And, And the distinct feeling that I have is that everybody is in over their head, from the medical experts to law enforcement, from the president to local mayors, I feel like everybody's in over their head, that this situation is too big for everybody. Now, if this was something in my own life, the solution is easy. I fall on my knees. I get counsel, get wisdom, do what I know how to do. But when I'm in a situation that's over my head, which is fairly frequently, I'm on my knees depending on God. There were prophecies years ago that Donald Trump would be the president. I mean, before he ever ran, before primaries, 2007 or 8, whatever. Uh, And that he would enter the White House, not as a praying man, but he would be filled with the Spirit in the White House and become a praying man. Maybe all this pressure will move him to become a praying man. Maybe. We can pray for it, yes? 866-34-TRUTH. We start in Maine with Tim. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Uh, thank you, um, uh, Mike. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm listening. Uh, oh, sorry about that. Uh, in uh, my question about Isaiah chapter seven fourteen, and it seems to be a, I guess you could say, a double prophecy, where in one way it intends, I guess, towards Isaiah's coming son, which you know his wife would have been, you know, a, a young woman, you know, a virgin, of course. And but then, how can it also apply to? Jesus, Mary being, you know, Jesus being born from a virgin. Is there some kind of a, a, a key that within, like, the Hebrew Scriptures that would tell, that would make that switch? And also, uh, did did the uh, Jewish people back in Old Testament times, did they think of that as uh, the Messiah being born from a virgin? Right. This is one of the most hotly disputed passages in the whole Bible, and the fact that Matthew quotes it, and Matthew 1.23, with reference to Yeshua's virgin birth, makes it vastly hotly debated. To answer your second question first, we have no evidence that in Old Testament times, or even in New Testament times, before uh, Jesus began his ministry, that anyone was looking for a virgin-born Messiah. We have no evidence of it. We don't have any sliver of ancient Jewish interpretation that points in that way, The most that we have is the Septuagint, 
the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible a couple hundred years before the time of Jesus, translating Alma with Parthenos. Now, Parthenos is not exclusively virgin. Uh, even in the New Testament, you can argue that it's not exclusively virgin, like the, 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 the foolish virgins and the wise virgins could just be foolish and wise young women. But uh, the fact they translate it with Parthenos instead of Neonis leans towards a virgin birth understanding, but even then would it be messianic. There are some who say, no, no, it's a virgin birth prophecy. It's all future. There are other things for Isaiah's day. That comes in the eighth chapter where Isaiah and his wife are going to have a child and the child will be called Meher Shal Hashbaz. And that's a totally separate sign. And Isaiah 714 is a sign for 700 years later. And others say that's ridiculous. They have relevance for, for Ahaz, King Ahaz, and, and, and then many interpreters say it only had relevance for him. It's not a messianic prophecy at all. My understanding is simply this, that there were many promises given to the line of David that were supposed to happen but never happened, like Psalm 2, where the, the Davidic king is going to rule over all the nations. That never happened. Or Isaiah 9, where this, this child w- would actually have divine status, this child born to the house of David, and would rule and reign, and his rule would be without end. And you would have thought that would have been Hezekiah, but that wasn't the case. There are many other verses like that, promises given to the line of David, that were never fully realized, never fulfilled. So they may have had a relevance at that moment they were spoken, but the ideal was never reached. The, the fullness of the prophecy was never reached. So Matthew, looking back, sees Matthew 7, see, excuse me, sees Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, the, the birth of the Messianic king, Isaiah 11, the rule of the Messianic king, and he sees that these are all prophecies about the Messiah. So my understanding is this. Alma, in and of itself, speaks of a young woman. Would you say presumably virgin? You could. But David in the Old Testament is called an Elam. That's the masculine equivalent, just young man. There is no Hebrew word which in and of itself, outside of a legal context dealing with rape or something like that, there is no Hebrew word which in and of itself means virgin. But Tula does not always mean virgin. Alma does not necessarily always mean virgin. It, you could argue that that is what is presupposed or understood, but it's not like just seeing the English word virgin would be more clear in itself. My understanding is that there was a prophecy given to King Ahaz because uh, northern Israel and Aram were trying to dispose him and overthrow the Davidic dynasty and establish their own man on the throne in Jerusalem. And that's why it ad- addresses the house of David in the immediate verses around it. For example, Isaiah 7, 13, it addresses the house of David, not just the king. So this is a sign for the house of David. I take it as a sign of, of a, a birth of great importance, even miraculous, and the great sign being that this child would be Emmanuel, God with us in some unique way, and that that it was actually saying, they're not going to replace you, Ahaz, I'm going to bring someone else to sit on the throne in your place, and this is who he's going to be. Now, we look back at it later on and see this was a promise given, but never reached its fullness. It reaches its fullness through the miraculous birth of Yeshua to Miriam, who was an Alma, no one would argue that, and who in the fullest sense of the word is God with us. So that's how I understand it. 
You could say it's a double prophecy, but you have many like that. And let's look at it from another angle. You have passages like Ezekiel 36, speaking the return of the Jewish people from exile and the glory that will follow and how the whole nation will turn to God and his laws will be written on their hearts. Did that happen when they came back from Babylon? No, they came back, but the rest of it didn't happen. So you have many promises like that in the Bible where the first part happens, but the rest doesn't, and therefore we await the rest of it. And to me, Matthew was opening up this with great spiritual insight to come to this conclusion. Okay, so so then uh, it, it sounds like some of the prophecies, you're not saying that in the Old Testament entirely, you're not saying they're, uh, uh, they're just unfulfilled, not necessarily uh, false, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. In, in other words, because yeah. they're spoken by true prophets and preserved yes. in the Word of God for us, then we say, well, the first part happened, we're sure the second part will happen. We got the deposit yeah. and the down okay. payment, we're confident of the rest. That's also how I understand God planted Messianic prophecies in the hearts and minds of the people of Israel, that, that he gave them great promises about the king is going to do this, the king is going to do that, but it doesn't happen fully. And now you don't even have a king, and you're in exile. It's like, now what? And you go back to them and say, where is that king? What happened to those promises? And that's the same, I believe, ultimately with Isaiah 7, 14. In, in my book, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, Volume 3, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, Volume 3, I get into great depth of Isaiah 7, 14, as well as the larger questions about fulfilled prophecy that you're asking. So hopefully this points you in a good direction. Thank you so much, Tim. For the question, 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Derek in Hawaii. Welcome to the Line of Fire. How's it going, Dr. Brown? Doing well, thank you. Hey, um, I had a question um, regarding the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you believe they're the closest um, sect that we have to biblical Christianity? Um, Why or why not? And the reason why I ask is, uh, you know, I'm a, a Protestant Christian, and um, my, my brother was actually doing a lot of studying in church history, and he was, you know, explaining to me about uh, the, the Protestant movement being against the Roman Catholic Church, but not necessarily the Eastern Orthodox. And he feels that a lot of what we do today is not uh, really close to what they're practicing in biblical Christianity, and that he's advocating for uh, a more Eastern Orthodox approach. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, so... Uh... Yeah, I I absolutely do not believe that the Eastern Orthodox is the closest to the original. Of course, that's their claim, and then Roman Catholics would claim to be the true church, and then evangelicals would say, well, we're following just the Bible, so I mean, each one is going to have their particular claim. Uh, But no, certainly not. The developed hierarchy of the church, you don't find that at all in the the New Testament. Uh, The the authority of tradition, supplementing Scripture, which develops things that the people in the Bible never heard of? Certainly not. Uh, there is a certain, even though it claims to be attached to Jewish roots, there really is a certain detachment from the Jewish roots of the faith and not recognizing the ongoing role of, of Israel. Uh, so, no, certainly in many ways I would, I would say no. Now, I, I would be more at home with Eastern Orthodoxy than with Roman Catholicism. But uh, we have a short video why I'm not Eastern Orthodox, I think just about three minutes long. 
and explains ultimately because I have to evaluate all traditions by Scripture because of various claims, and where I see something adding to Scripture, going against Scripture, then I have to differ with it. Uh, I would say, honestly, that if you connect it with a Spirit-filled evangelical house church or with a Spirit-filled messianic Jewish congregation in Israel, you get closest to what was being practiced in the first century. The latter, the Messianic congregation, being practiced by uh, Jewish believers in Israel, and just house-based, non-hierarchical, spirit-filled, Bible-based movement, uh, I could make a much, much better case than that for that being authentic New Testament Christianity as opposed to Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism. Check out my book, Revolution in the Church. Revolution in the Church, challenging the religious system with a call for radical change. Right, we'll be right back. We've got a phone line open. Get in now. Jesus said he was going to prepare a place for us, those who are his followers. Do you ever wonder what it's really going to look like? Next on Living on the Edge with Chip Ingram, Chip takes us on a guided tour of the place Jesus is preparing for us. Who's there, what we're going to do, and if you're like me, you're going to be amazed at what's coming. Don't miss Living on the Edge with Chip Ingram. The Vast of Night, now streaming online, were transported back to the 1950s. In Cayuga, New Mexico, 16-year-old Faye Crocker works the late shift as a telephone switchboard operator. When she hears a mysterious sound through her headset, she calls Everett Sloan, a teen DJ at the local radio station. Kay, Everett, and a radio listener with a spooky theory seek to understand what they're hearing. The result? A slow-burning UFO thriller. Some profanity and teen smoking earned this flick its PG-13 rating, so we're giving The Vast of Night a 3 out of 5 for family friendliness. Read the full review at PluggedIn.com radio. I'm Adam Holtz for Focus on the Family's Plugged In Movie Review. When the going gets tough, when the odds are stacked against us, it's important to maintain our godly character, but it's also when that's the most challenging. This week on A New Beginning, Pastor Greg Laurie helps us learn from a godly leader named Nehemiah. Join us for inspiration and instruction this week on A New Beginning. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to The Line of Fire. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. Let's get my screen clear here. Uh, Actually, the video, Why I'm Not Eastern Orthodox, was not an attack on Eastern Orthodoxy, by the way, just explaining why I'm not. That will actually be posted in a few days. And um, Monday, we are going to play a special interview with you, for you, that was recorded May 14th with Shane Claiborne, Christian activist, red-letter Christian Trump opponent, 
Shane Claiborne, I think you'll find it to be really interesting as, as we talk candidly but graciously. So that is going to air, God willing, on Monday, 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Mitch in Columbia, Kentucky. Welcome to the Line of Fire. How you doing, Dr. Brandon? Doing well, thank you. Hey, first of all, I just wanted to say I thank you very much for, um, for what you're doing. I appreciate it. And, uh, and before I even found you, I pretty much had the same exact ideology on Christ as you. And I think it's awesome. But uh, Great. My, my question for you is I come from, like, I started off being a Christian in, a, in an old school Pentecostal church. And uh, always gifts of the Spirit were, were moving. It was awesome. I loved it. But ended up having to leave years later because it was always preached that you were not truly saved unless you spoke in tongues. It was only the, the one specific gift. And they would use verses. I even got a pamphlet here from Facebook Church. Like, um, pretty much that everybody spoke in tongues. Like, Jew, Gentiles, like Jews in uh, Acts 2, 1 through 4, the Samaritans, the Samaritans in Acts 8, 15 through 17, the Gentiles, Acts 10, 44 through 48, the religious, Acts 19, 1 through 6. Um, and I want Scripture to be to back up my side that you can still be saved up. I know the Holy Spirit fell upon John when he was in the womb, and he, you know, obviously that the baby bounced around um, to them. That's not evidence because we didn't have the comforter. My uh-huh. argument is the Holy Spirit was always God. He always was. So there's evidence. But I know I've been kind of yeah. rambling. So, on. yeah, no, no, no. Good, Mitch. Number one. You're going to be the one. You're going to be the one to teach me how yeah. I can help draw my brother and sister closer. And I've been dying to, to call and ask you this question. And yeah, sure thing. I have the opportunity to Yeah, I glad did. Glad to help me. So, so let me let me jump in and and answer that. Number one, Acts eight does not mention speaking in tongues. Doesn't say a word about it. Okay, just to be clear, it does say that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and Simon saw it, but it does not say they spoke in tongues. That's just the first point. Yeah. And they were saved already. They were already saved. They had received the Lord, but they had not yet spoken in tongues. So that right there destroys their whole argument. The Samaritans, through the preaching of Philip, were already believers. They were already saved, but they did not yet have the Holy Spirit. That's the, so that's proof number one, okay? And it doesn't okay. mention tongues. That's number two. In terms of Acts 19, if you automatically received the Spirit and spoke in tongues when you were saved, why does Paul ask them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Why does he have to ask them that? If everyone, the moment you're saved, receives the Spirit, it doesn't say he led them to Jesus and and they were saved. It doesn't say that at all. What it says is he asked them, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? No, we didn't even hear about this. Oh, okay, so now he's got to teach them the rest. And it doesn't say they're religious. It's just they had only heard the message of Jesus through, through John the Immerser, John the Baptist. And then it mentions tongues and prophecy. So maybe you have to prophesy also. So that's another thing that goes by the wayside. Then Paul, specifically in 1 Corinthians 12, at the end of the chapter, says, do all speak in tongues? The answer is no, not all speak in tongues. Now, they they can be interpreted in different ways, but if you're just trying to push back against them, why is he asking? No, not all speak in tongues. 
so uh, that that is is yet another thing that goes against their teaching. And also, if tongues is the evidence of salvation, why does he tell saved people don't forbid speaking in tongues at the end of 1 Corinthians 14? In other words, if, if tongues comes with salvation, why is he telling saved people, oh, don't forbid tongues? Because obviously tongues was something additional. Tongues was something extra. And some thought it was wrong or out of order. He said, no, don't forbid it. Uh, so uh, the fact is, uh, in Acts 10, they are saved before they are baptized in water. In other, in, in other chapters, they are saved before they are baptized in the Spirit. So it would be great if everyone was filled with the Spirit and everyone spoke in tongues. That would be wonderful. But that is not salvation. It's not the key to salvation. It's not the evidence of salvation. And nowhere is it taught in the Bible to be the evidence of salvation. And all that does is put people under tremendous pressure to make believe they're speaking in tongues or something like that or, or try to work it up. And it, so it's unbiblical and it's unhealthy. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always used, you know, when Paul tells us that God will give, you know, in his accordance, you know, each individual their gift. Um, and they say, yes, I believe that also, but that's not being, quote, baptized in the Spirit. And I still love those people. And it's, you know, those people brought me to Christ. Right. But it's a hinge point. And it's you know you no, and it's a serious error. It's a serious error that they have, Mitch, and and because of that, um, they become very exclusive, and that's the big issue. It's one say things say, hey, you know, we differ on this. In my understanding, the baptism of the Spirit is subsequent to salvation, and everyone should seek it. And the most common outward evidence of it is tongues, but others would say, no, you're baptized in the Spirit when you're saved, but God doesn't give tongues to everyone. All right, we can differ on that. That's fine. But when people make it, like you say, a hinge point or a hinge point of fellowship, that's when it crosses a dangerous line. Hey, Mitch, God bless you. Uh, stay in the Word. Keep walking in the Spirit. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, we go to David in Tewksbury, Massachusetts. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. Good to be on. Thank you. Um, I, had, I had a question. Just, and it actually was very similar to what the last person just brought up. Mm-hmm. But I have two questions, actually. So my first question is in John 22, and this might be a simple answer, but I just, I had, I brought this up to somebody who, and they, they kind of differed with me on it. And in John, not John 22, John 2022, 20, mm-hmm. and it says that the Holy, that Jesus, like, spoke and he breathed on them, the Holy Spirit. He like, breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Right. Yeah. So were they saved in that moment? I believe they, they were believe- saved. I believe they were saved before that. But they were then either indwelt by the Spirit at that moment, which they had not been before. Remember, people in the Old Testament were saved. They were, they, they were justified by faith, right? They didn't have everything we have, but they, there are still people justified by faith, just as we are. Abraham is the, is the father of, of believers, right? Uh, yeah, Jew and Gentile. Yeah. So they, they were saved. Were they indwelt by the Spirit? No, because Jesus says a few chapters earlier, he, he is with you, but he'll be in you, the Holy Spirit. So either at that moment they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit, or that was symbolic of what was going to happen a few weeks later when they would receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and speak in new languages. So either they were indwelt by the Spirit at that moment, 
or that was the prophetic uh, proclamation of what was going to happen a few weeks later. Yeah, so I thought it was that they were in Guam, and somebody was somebody told me that it was it was prophetic, and it, it, it what, what do you think? Which one do you think it is? I'm not sure, honestly. I've thought about it a lot. <laughs> I've wavered. You know, at the moment when I think of it, I, I think that something did happen to them, and they were probably indwelt by the Spirit at that moment. You know, in other words, if he spoke it, nothing happened. It's like they might say, what was that? You know, <laughs> what happened? Yeah. Um, but then he also could have t- taught and instructed and said, I've spoken, it's going to happen. I, I think it's likely they were indwelt by the Spirit at that moment, and then the empowering came later, which would be just like when we're born again, we're immediately indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but the empowering can come later. But it's debatable. Yeah. Uh, you can make a good case either way. Okay, cool. And then my second question uh, was, and this has totally different. It's, um, and I think you you went over this, but I heard you talk about it, but I didn't hear what you thought about it. Now I, I wanted to get your opinion mm-hmm. on in Thessalonians when it talks about the restrainer. I was curious. Like I saw like thirty different interpretations of who the restrainer was. In, in, in that, in that, um, in that. Verse. Yeah, Craig, Craig Keener in Not Afraid of the Antichrist mentions over 30. And if you'll get a, you know, major critical commentary, they'll, they'll list one after another, after another, after another. Uh, the, oh, I have the, actually, I'm halfway through the book. So I, I actually, I have the book. Yeah. Uh, so, through. so in, in short, David, uh, a three word answer I don't know. If you press me, I don't know. Now, why did Paul speak to them cryptically? Could it be that he was talking about authority, governing authority, and when that's taken out of the way, you have chaos, and that that could have been taken as if they were talking about overthrowing Rome or something like that? That's a plausible suggestion. In other words, that it, that it had to be spoken cryptically. They said, hey, you know what I'm talking about, instead of spelling it out. So... You know, I might argue in that direction that there's a certain establishment of order and authority that God has in the world, even though it's through sinful people. When that's taken out of the way, so it's an it, the authority, and it's and it's 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 it's, it's, it's a someone, you know, a, a leader, taken out of the way. Then what do you have? Man of lawlessness, chaos, anarchy, and preparing the way for an antichrist. But I'm honestly not sure. I am sure it's not the church and the Holy Spirit being taken out of the way. That I'm sure about. All right, thank you for the call. Here's Dr. Robert Jeffress with today's Pathway Minute. Have you ever had people ask you about capital punishment? Well, why is it those of you fundamentalist Christians who are so big against abortion, why don't you have the same feeling about capital punishment? If you believe in the sanctity of life, don't you believe in the sanctity of all life? What do you think about Texas executing those hundreds of criminals? I've been asked that all week this week. And I point people always to Romans 13. The Bible says individually we're never to return evil for evil. But government is an extension of God's rule, and God gives government the power of the sword to execute judgment, the ultimate judgment, against those who practice evil. My point here is that government is not divorced from God in Scripture. Government is an agent of God to accomplish His purpose. 
Today's Pathway Minute is provided by your station and Pathway to Victory. To hear the Bible teaching of Dr. Robert Jeffress, go to ptv.org. Hi, I'm Johnny Erickson Tata. I once heard a Bible teacher describe Jesus' miracle of turning water into wine as one of highest quality and quantity. Those six stone jars that the servants filled with water held up to 30 gallons. So when Jesus changed that plain Galilean water into wine, there was far more than the wedding party needed. Jesus gave more than anyone would have expected. And as far as the quality goes, well, that wine was the best, like none other. Jesus loves to do things in quality and quantity. And that's what he wants to do in your life. He said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. To have the life of the Lord flowing through you, that is living a quality life. And the power to live it? (laughs) Friend, today you've got it to the full. Celebrate his quality and quantity in your life today. This is a Love Language Minute with Dr. Gary Chapman. A listener writes, Gary, I'm a dating single mom of three kids, and we're talking about marriage. How do I approach her children with this? Should she do it, or should I talk to them first? By all means, the biological parent should talk with the children. They have a bond with her, an emotional bond with her that you don't have. So she should talk to them about the possibility of marriage. Let them have their response. Now, you need to be kind to them. You need to answer any questions they might ask you. You need to let them know that you love their mother. But she must be the spokesman because they're far more likely to receive the message coming from her than coming from you. That's Dr. Gary Chapman, author of the best-selling book, The Five Love Languages. For more information or helpful resources for your relationships, go to fivelovelanguages.com. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. All right, 45 minutes from now, 4.15 Eastern Standard Time. So work it out wherever you are. 4.15 Eastern Standard Time. So listen, 45 minutes from now, we'll be back on our YouTube channel. Ask Dr. Brown, A-S-K-D-R Brown with our weekly exclusive Q&A chat. So join me then, especially if you can't get through now, you can ask your question without having to call. So that'll be on the Ask Dr. Brown YouTube channel. Okay, before I go to your calls, 866-34-TRUTH, you've got questions, we've got answers. I posted a poll last night about 1130, posted it on Twitter. And I asked the question, what, what's your feeling now about the, the, the coronavirus shutdown? Do you think it was necessary and right? It's choice one. You think it was somewhat of an overreaction? Choice two. Choice three, you think it was a big mistake, but well-intended? Or do you think it was a big mistake, but intentionally planned by forces hostile to the nation? Interestingly, the lowest response, we got 937 votes so far. So far, not so far, so far. The lowest is necessary and right. Isn't that interesting? Only 16.9%. Wow. And then, um, next lowest, very slightly, well-intended big mistake, then that's 26%, then evil-intended big mistake, 26.8, and then an overreaction, 
30.3. But notice that almost 53% say big mistake. And out of that half say, roughly half, well-intended, others evil-intended. Interesting. Very interesting, isn't it? So uh, anyway, just wanted to mention that to you. And get back to the phones. We go to um, Carlo in San Diego. Welcome to the line of fire. You're on the air. Hey, Dr. Brown. How you hey. doing? Good, good. So, you know, I, I, my pastor right now, uh, he's actually a professor at a seminary. And uh, he's well studied, you know, in Greek and Hebrew. So mm-hmm. I come from a Pentecostal background like yourself. Yeah. But he's a... Uh, He's a partial cessationist, mm-hmm. kind of like uh, your brothers that disagree with you, Justin Peters, you know, John MacArthur. So how do you approach somebody that's just more theological than you? You know, it's hard to tell them, somebody who's well studied, well, the, the Holy Spirit and the Word is revealing this, when they won't accept that. You know, they want this yeah. full theological breakdown. You know, I just, I, use, I just you, use the Bible for them. I just use the Bible. The Bible is 100% against their position. I believe it is impossible to defend a cessationist position just using the Bible. If all you use is the New Testament, it's clear that the gifts are here until Jesus returns. It's clear that that the power of the Holy Spirit should be in demonstration. It's clear that we should expect to see healing when we lay hands on the sick. Uh, It's clear that there should be ongoing prophecies Nowhere does it say it should stop. To the contrary, Paul says, eagerly seek prophecy. Don't forbid tongues. And you have to say, okay, I'm just going by the Bible. Just show me where that stopped. Show me who changed that. It never says it. James, Jacob, the fifth chapter. Does anyone sick? The elders of the congregation lay hands. Who changed that? Where did that stop? The need for the power of the Holy Spirit, that a witness must be in the power of the Holy Spirit. Where did that stop? Acts, Acts 2, the outpouring is on all flesh for all time until, until Jesus returns, the entire period of, of the last days, and it includes prophecy. And So who changed that? Uh, do you have my book, Authentic Fire? I do. I do. All right, so review the chapter, Sola Scriptura, and therefore Charismatic. So let's not even worry about the Pentecostal church today or this church down the block. Let's just use the Bible, okay? Let's just use the Bible. I, and, and when you go it, through that, well. yeah, when you go through that, then you have massively the upper hand. You don't have to talk about what God's doing all around the world and all the miracles taking place and the hundreds of millions who've been touched by the Spirit around the world. You don't have to bring that up. All you have to say is, let's just I go by what the Bible says. Dr. Brown, I think it's kind of like what you've mentioned before. You know, I left my Pentecostal church because of religious as well. You know, when somebody kind of had this, this higher gift where you saw that something was working, there was also that spiritual abuse of, you know, well, you're not doing this. This is not enough. You need to work this gift. And it became so exhausting that when you hear somebody like a brother MacArthur or Justin Peters, you're like, man, it just sounds more and more sound. There's not all this pressure on me coming like from this side. And I think that's what makes it more appealing. Not that the gifts have stopped. I think sometimes it's the abuse and the hurt that we do to ourselves. Right. But bear in mind, John MacArthur and Justin Peters do not believe in prophecy for today, do not believe that there are valid right. tongues today, do not believe gifts of healing are normative. Justin would say God and his sovereignty can heal, and, and he rejoices right. when that happens. 
but that these things are not normative. So they are, they are cessationists for sure. You wouldn't call them partial cessationists. They are cessationists. But, uh, yeah, look, to, to me, when I tried to get away from my Pentecostal roots in the late 70s and early 80s, and with my hyper-intellectualism and, and theological pride, two things pulled me back. First, when I would really press into the Lord and spend quality time with him, it would be very natural to speak in tongues, and, I, and it, it was a, a very intimate experience in God, but that was secondary. The bigger thing, it was the Bible. I bought all these right. books to convince me that this was not for today, but the Bible was too clear. I thought, yikes, it's just, I can't get away from it. It's too clear. And then I, I received a, a mighty endowment of the Holy Spirit that, that, that dramatically changed my life in late 82, and I've, I've never been the same since then. So review that chapter, Carla, uh, Sola Scriptura, and therefore Charismatic, and also look at the chapter about a God to be experienced. According to the Bible, what kind of experience should we have in God? Thank you, sir, for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Eugene in Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Yes, sir. Thank you for uh, for having me on. It's an honor to be able to speak to you again, sir. And um, just my question, um, I've been reading throughout the book of Proverbs recently, um, Proverbs 6.6, 6, and um, it, it speaks a lot about paying attention to the ants and how basically they have their own motivation or incentive to be hard workers. And listening to a sermon by Paul Washer recently, too, he was talking about what biblical manhood looks like or um, especially in the context of being a husband, how the culture today in America teaches people how to get the most out of something while putting in the least amount of work. And he says that that's an unbiblical concept. And so when I try to, you know, put some self-examination, I just see areas in my life where there seems to be not a lack of spiritual discipline. I read, I pray, I do all those things, but it's almost like a lack of earthly discipline. Like I, I go to work, with the idea of just doing enough to get by. And I'm basically, you know, Colossians 3.17, doing all that you do for the glory of God. I just know that I can be so much more of a hard worker. It's almost like I'm existing, but not really having much of an incentive to to work hard. And I'm just wondering, what can I do or where can I go in the Bible that could really encourage me to give it my all as far as worth ethic? And what do you think are the dangers of allowing a lawful spirit uh, to basically rule your own spirit. Yeah, well, obviously, the book of Proverbs talks about it a lot. There are a lot of verses in Proverbs, and slothfulness can destroy us. It can be the difference between success and failure. It can be the difference between being blessed and not being blessed. It can be the difference between having a life of significance and a life of insignificance. So there are a few things. One is I would go through Proverbs and write down or copy out, cut and paste every verse on Proverbs, uh, excuse me, every verse on laziness and discipline, every single one. I would look at those and then I would print them out or put them on my phone, whatever, and every day read them out loud and pray over them, every single day. And then I would ask God, Lord, I need help. I'm not a motivated person. I, I want to do just enough to get by. And I would ask God for help. And then I would do what I can. The moment I sense that and notice that, I would try to work against it. So first, I would renew my mind by the word. And then with that, I would pray over those verses 
and pray for it. Lord, I'm weak here. Lord, I struggle here. Lord, I don't have it here. Lord, I need help. Uh, I remember talking to a woman who had left her husband and was involved in a lesbian relationship with another woman for years, and her husband kept praying for her. And she did not want to go back to her husband. She did not want to get right with God. She said, but I was willing to be willing to be willing. It was just this faint, faint thing, and God met her there, and then, then she acted on that and acted on that. So when you feel stirred to more discipline, then act on that. When you feel stirred to go the extra mile, act on that. And what happens is you develop new habits, and those new habits become a lifestyle. But start with a confession of your weakness and a recognition of it. Do what you have to do to get the word in your heart and mind and pray over those things, and then take steps. And soon enough, you'll see that your habits are different. And then you have to push yourself every day in that regard because you know the results otherwise. You know the results otherwise. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Burlington, Iowa, Montel. Thank you for calling the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. How are you? Very well. Thank you. Hi. Uh, quick question. So I'm a torchbearer. And sorry, I have a message, Jim, so I'm blowing my breath really hard. But uh, I'm a torchbearer. And uh, I was watching the Jewish uh, Roots video, and it is so amazing. I learned, I'm learning so much, but you made a statement and you said, um, for like the, for instance, the smacking on the cheek, right? But, mm -hmm. or the statement of the two Pharisee groups from Hillel and uh, Shammai. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but you were making the statements on, like, for instance, on Hillel, on how, you know, Jesus could have possibly started his ministry on Jubilee. Right, or certainly in the seven, a seventh year, year of release, the seventh year, either way. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah uh, but I was wondering if, like, you were kind of making it as if it was a it's plausible. But I wanted to know if, if you thought that there's really truth to that. Like, if, if there's, like, if you, kind of what your opinion is. Like, my, is Yeah, my true? opinion is that it's very likely, because of his proclaiming liberty and using Isaiah 61 and his other relevant teaching, but it can't be proven. We, we do not have a chronology that allows us to be absolutely sure. And it's clear that there was some confusion in, in the Jewish world uh, in terms of, of those kinds of things. So I, I, I lean towards it. I personally lean towards his ministry beginning of what would have been a jubilee year. And he's coming to proclaim ultimately to the captains. But I can't be dogmatic on it. Hey, Montel, thank you for your support. We appreciate it. Modern day deception of Satan in the world today is to blur sin. Dr. Michael Youssef. Once he blurs sin, there's no need for grace. If he can deceive people into believing that God is in all of us and therefore each one of us should be guided by his or her own feelings, then there's no need for grace. Be challenged this week on Leading the Way. Modern-day deception of Satan in the world today is to blur sin. Dr. Michael Youssef. Once he blurs sin, there's no need for grace. If he can deceive people into believing that God is in all of us, and therefore each one of us should be guided by his or her own feelings, 
and there's no need for grace. Be challenged this week on Leading the Way. Do you find the news confusing? Do you wonder who you can trust? Then Breakpoint This Week is designed for you. I'm Shane Morris with the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Join me and my Colson Center colleague, John Stone Street, every week right here on this station for a half-hour discussion of the news you care about, looked at through a biblical worldview lens. That's Breakpoint This Week, a half-hour of clarity, conviction, and compassion to help you sort out a chaotic and confusing world. Next time on Focus on the Family, Dr. Tony Evans explains what it means to have a kingdom marriage under God's authority and for His glory. He shares about maintaining oneness, the importance of having a servant's heart, and how to rebuild a marriage relationship that's been fractured. God's wisdom for your marriage on the next Focus on the Family. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on The Line of Fire, 866-34-TRUTH. Montel just referenced being a torchbearer. Those are monthly supporters who help us with a dollar a day or more per month, so $30 or more per month. And uh, they are the, the backbone of what we do in so many ways. So thank you for standing with us and helping us do what we do, helping us reach others, which is why we're here. Every month as a torchbearer, you have access to exclusive video material. So we make thousands of videos available to the general public, but then we have exclusive content for our monthly supporters and our Patreon supporters, those helping with $10 or more per month. We also uh, send you a new audio message every month. We also send you an insider prayer letter to let you know what's going on in key updates. You also get a 15% discount uh, in our uh, uh, online store. So if we've been a blessing to you, why not become a torchbearer? And I believe as you sow in and help us uh, touch America, spark revival in the nations, and bring the gospel to the Jewish people. I believe God will bless you for doing that in many, many ways as well. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Michael in San Francisco. Thanks for calling the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. Thanks again for uh, taking the call. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Um, So my question is, our church is going through uh, Daniel, and... um, this has always been on the back of my mind, but um, my pastor was really uh, hitting on the fact that um, these prophecies, the, the interpretation of the dreams, for for example, the, the, the statue made out of, uh, you know, uh, gold, bronze, iron, and then stone, um, how these were prophetic, you know, uh, truths that pointed to, pointed to something that actually did happen uh, later on in Israel's history. So, for example, like the the the, the Empire of the Medes and the Persians were uh, prophesied in the dream as the the, the feet of the, the statue. And later on, my pastor also talked about how the I think uh, the Persian Cyrus. No one 
you know, history does not record there being a Cyrus in this particular time until recently where uh, it turned out that there was a Cyrus ruling in, I guess, the uh, the uh, Persian, maybe the Persian stead, um, you know, in uh, uh, Israel at the time. So, um, but my question is, like, I'm, I've tried to discuss this with other people who said, well, we have absolutely no idea because because the Old Testament documents that we have are, you know, hundreds of years after the fact. So these could have been redacted, and therefore, none, you know, someone looking back at history, writing Daniel, said, okay, this is what happened. So basically, under false pretenses, it is a prophecy. They were just recording history. What's I mean, is there any truth in that, or do we have? I know we don't have the originals, but you know, what's what's the what's the way to address this? Right. So um, the first thing is, of course, we don't have for any book of the Bible, mm-hmm. we don't have original copies. What we have is manuscript copies after manuscript copies after manuscript copies after manuscript copies. The arguments about Daniel, it's kind of funny. On the one hand, they claim Daniel must have written it in the second century because he got so many things accurately. So the second century mm-hmm. before Jesus, he must have written it then and was looking back and just creating it as if it was prophecy. And others say, well, he must have written it then because he got the other things wrong, like Daniel 6, he mentions somebody we never heard of and so on. And it's like, well, did mm-hmm. he get it right or did he get it wrong? I mean, that's, that's kind of the funny thing. Uh, we know that Daniel was included in the Septuagint. So at least 150 years before Jesus, this was... Uh, included in the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint also includes other books, which we call apocryphal books, mm-hmm. but we, we know it, it predates that for sure, it's, and, it, and it's being translated into Greek, so there was an original translated into Greek. Uh, fragments are found at the Dead sea, among the Dead Sea Scrolls, so that's, that's you know, another positive indication. Studies have been done mm-hmm. on the Aramaic of Daniel. Uh, Gleason Archer uh, did studies on it, and another gentleman... Um, Stefanovich, the Aramaic of Daniel in the light of old Aramaic, uh, did studies of this and, and argued that the Aramaic of Daniel is an older Aramaic. In other words, would, mm. would, would vindicate a date being written in the 6th century B.C. Uh, now, you could theoretically say that someone wrote in an antiquated way, like me writing in King James English today. You could make that argument, but... Once we had the Aramaic and the Dead Sea Scrolls, we could we could really kind of look and say, okay, this is a different, this is an earlier Aramaic. That was the conclusion of Gleason Archer as well. So the fact it's in the Septuagint, the fact you have fragments in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the fact that the Aramaic can be argued to, to be older Aramaic, that uh, that points to the book being ancient as spoken. Uh, and mm. and then Jesus and New Testament writers referring to it, you know, Jesus specifically referring to it, uh, indicating that these are, these are true prophecies. But you can't prove it. In, in other words, you, sure. uh, to a skeptic... Or we don't have a, the original manuscripts. Right, right. You know, and, and, and again, you, the idea of having manuscripts, unless it was like carved in stone, okay? The, the idea that you'd have all this preserved in papyri, you know, the, the, the Middle East environment was not best for that. You have certain things like the scrolls were put aside and, you know, you, you have those. Um, but yeah. you have to basically, you date uh, based on a number of factors. And linguistic factors are some of them. 
So you can't prove it, but you can make a good case for the authenticity of Daniel. But what I would say to people is, okay, what do you do with things that we know were prophecies spoken in advance at least a few hundred years before the time of Jesus that came to pass strikingly in his life, or that he'd be rejected by his own people and be a light to the nations of the world? You know, what do you do with those? Those are the things I'd emphasize. And then say, hey, look, if you truly call out to God and seek him earnestly, he said that, that he'll reveal himself. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You do your part, and he'll make himself known. But you can give good intellectual arguments for Daniel. Uh, the biggest issue normally comes up with Daniel 6, 1, and who's mentioned there, and when, when did he exist, and those questions. But again, we keep learning. Sometimes someone was just a different name was used for someone. We discover that later. Hey, Michael, thank you for the call. Uh, all right, do we have time? Uh, John in Salt Lake City, thanks for calling. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Hey. I just had a quick question for you. I wonder if you've uh, watched any of the series called The Chosen and whether what your opinion is of the authenticity of uh, how they portray Jewish culture at the time of Jesus. Yeah, I, I have not seen it. Uh, unfortunately, I've not seen it. Uh, okay. Are, are there anything specifically that caught your eye that you wondered about? I, I just find it a really compelling series, and I, I think of my Jewish friends when I watch it, because, uh, you know, it really emphasizes the fact that Jesus was a Jew, <laughs> and and uh, yep. and he was surrounded, all his followers were Jews, and, you know, I, I to me, i you know, it's something I want them to watch, and I feel like it would uh, attract them in a different way than other ways I might approach them about Jesus being the Messiah. Do you have my book, The Real Kosher Jesus? No, I do not. Can I encourage you to get it? You'll find it a tremendous eye-opener and a great bridge builder for speaking with Jewish people as well. And watching this series, it'll be even more meaningful. It's called The Real Kosher Jesus. Okay, thank you. You're very welcome. Uh, do I, yeah, okay, we've got time. Holly in Seattle. Time is short, so please dive right in. Hi, Dr. Brown. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Good. Um, so my question was actually in regards to marriage. So I know that in Genesis 2.24, it says that a marriage is between um, a man and a, and a woman and that they, you know, the man will cleave to his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Well, right, there, yeah, leave, leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's right. Sorry, I got that flipped around. Um, but I, I also know that a marriage is supposed to represent the relationship and the covenantal relationship between God and his people. And I guess I got thinking about, you know, if you have, like, two non-believers who have no intention of representing uh, the relationship between God and his people, like, is that considered a true and legitimate marriage in the eyes of God? Yeah, yeah. Get, getting married, Holly, is between a man and a woman. In other words, Paul is explaining in Ephesians 5 the larger picture of, of Jesus, the groom, and the church as the bride— and in the Old Testament, God is, is the husband of, of Israel. Israel's the bride. But marriage is what it is. It's the union of a man and woman together for life. And in that sense, it's sacred. Even if it's completely secular in front of a judge, 
in God's sight, when those two people come together in, in, with the intention of marrying, then they are then joined together. And that same word, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So even a secular wedding, would still, once it's consummated, is still, in that sense, God joining people together. They may not understand the full significance of it or the spiritual meaning of things, but it's still something sacred. Marriage in itself is still something sacred. Hey, out of time, but thank you for the call. Right, Listen, friends, 15 minutes from now, I'll be right back. Right back here. Yeah, just in 15 minutes, I'll be right back. I will be taking your questions on YouTube on Ask Dr. Brown. So same channel on YouTube, ASK Dear Brown, 15 minutes from now, our exclusive weekly Q&A chat. And check out my latest article on the stream about how ruthless the cancel culture is.